Hey ghouls, happy hump day, and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks, and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hey ghouls, happy hump day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast. I hope you're all having a great week. I am joined, obviously, as always, by my best ghoul, Lindsay. How are you doing, babe? Yeah, I'm okay, thanks. How are you? Good, yeah, just about surviving between the world events going on and storms in Scotland and everything's basically chaos and fire right now. Yeah, I'm like just quite happy to stay in my flat with my pets and just kind of shut the world out at the moment. Very grateful that I can do that as well because, yeah, the world is just on fire at the moment. Yeah, so I'm very grateful to be able to stay inside and binge watch Euphoria and Love is Blind and chat to you about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so as we mentioned last week, this whole month we are going to be celebrating women, women in horror um, for March because it's International Women's Month and we are starting off with horror movies directed by women. Now Lindsay this was your choice, actually a lot most of the choices for this month were yours, um, so what? why did you want to start off with horror movies directed by women? Well, there's so many sets, so many figures about the film industry and how little women really participate behind the camera as well as in front we don't get a lot of uh, leading female characters but we'll go to that towards the end of the month um so I just really wanted a chance to highlight the women behind the camera like running the show for some of our favorite horror films yeah you're so right and like time and time again we've seen um even with the likes of the reboot of Candyman you know women behind the screen whether they're producers or writers or directors they're sometimes not given the recognition they deserve as part of the project and you're like uh, actually this person's also involved in it so yeah I think it's um I'm gonna have a lot of fun this month I think we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about some amazing amazing films in front and behind the screen but we'll get on to the films so you chose The Invitation so why did you choose The Invitation? I love this film like I love Karen Kusama as well like we've previously spoken about her when we looked at Jennifer's Body I feel like in terms of a filmmaker if you look at her filmography she's such a like a diverse filmmaker she's really like dipped her toes in just about every single genre which I think is really interesting so many filmmakers kind of stick to one avenue she hasn't and she's really put her mark on like just about every genre going and I just really love the stories that she tells as well um and in particular this one um I feel like if someone was to ask me what does anxiety feel like I would just put this film on for them because (laughs) it is like literally I feel like the film version of anxiety 
Uh, it's funny because like I had seen the invitation before, but I've only seen it once. So seeing it, I seeing it like I rewatched it again today. I forgot how anxiety inducing it was. And I probably shouldn't have had a lot of coffee today either because I was like, oh fuck, what's happening? Um so yeah, and Karen Kasuma, absolutely fantastic, fantastic director and writer, as you said, um, the brains behind Jennifer's body, but so many other things in her filmography as well. And that's also quite rare in horror because you find a lot of people in horror, at least directors, don't really do anything else. They might go in a subgenre of like horror comedy or something like that. But like, I don't know. I don't really hear many, you know, directors being as diverse as she is. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's why I was like, I feel like she's a really good person to highlight. I mean, she's done a bit of sci-fi dramas. She's done a lot of TV work as well. Like you don't really get that you normally get people who just stay in their lane and I think it's a sin that she's not more of a household name to be honest because I've really enjoyed like everything I've watched that she's done I've absolutely loved it so I would love for her to be more well known but say lovey we'll shout about her constantly on the podcast any chance we get (laughs) we'll make her a household name (laughs) Uh, the movie that I chose uh, for this week's theme of women, uh, films directed by women, I chose The Babadook, which is directed and written by Jennifer Kent. It's um, an Australian-based horror movie. I feel like quite a, people, a lot of people know of The Babadook and The Babadook low-key now being a gay icon, which we love. <laughs> but like, in all seriousness, the thing that I love about this film is that, you know, behind the supernatural elements of it, it really is a story about mental health about PTSD, anxiety, depression, and how fucking hard it is to be a parent. Like, I mean, neither of us are parents, so, you know, I can't claim anything, but it shows, like, the real dark side of motherhood that I don't feel like we always see in horror. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, no, I I absolutely love The Babadook. And again, I think it is another really good film that talks about mental health in a really good way. And, like... Again, it's like with the invitation, I'd be like, this is anxiety. And with the Babadook, I'd be like, this film is depression. Like, watch this if you want to understand what it's like to have depression, because I think they portray it like really well and really realistically and yeah, like authentic, you know? Yeah, because it's so easy for mental health on screen to be demonized or sensationalized it's it's a really difficult thing to make come across in a genuine way and I feel like this this film really does but we're going to be starting off with the invitation so Lindsay I'm going to hand it over to you take it away how this thing is so official maybe they're overcompensating it's kind of hard to call everybody up out of the blue after two years so glad you're here. We've got a lot to talk about. So much to celebrate tonight. Each and every one of us is on a journey. And we feel that it's important to be on that journey with the people you love. Everybody, this is my friend Pruitt. Bars on the windows and no? Security. Safer. You've been acting so suspicious of our hospitality. 
plot for the invitation is a man accepts an invitation to a dinner party hosted by his ex-wife, an unsettling affair that reopens old wounds and creates new tensions. This film came out in 2015, stars Logan Marshall Green, Michael Huseman and Tammy Blanchard, it's directed by Karen Kusama, was written by Phil Hay and Matty Manfredi. Um, yeah, so that's that is that. Um, do you do you remember the first time you watched this film, Lucy? I am sure this was on Netflix at one point, wasn't it? Because I think that's yeah, when I was. watched. That's when I watched it. It was a little <clears throat> while ago. I remember seeing it on Netflix. I think it was like maybe around the start of the pandemic, actually, probably like twenty twenty or something. But I've only seen it the once, and you know what? Like. I wish I'd watched it again because I forgot how good it is. Because, like, you know, when you watch something and it's been quite a while, you kind of forget. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was on my, my Netflix list. Um, I had watched this before um, to do kind of horror community stuff with uh, Sophie of Sophie Serves Face, go and give her a follow. And um, all this, like, she said some deadpan stuff like while we were talking about this film that's just been cracking me up all week um (laughs) um, just about because obviously it's there's situations in film that just feel so eerie and weird and just uncomfortable but you can't quite put your finger on it and um yeah she was cracking me up so (laughs) it was quite fun to revisit this and then just kind of like laugh about the moments that she was like being deadpan funny about (laughs) but anyway (laughs) so um the film opens with Will and his girlfriend Kira driving to the Hollywood Hills um to his ex-wife's house who's hosting a dinner party and on the way they knock over a coyote which will unfortunately has to put out of its misery um which does kind of set the tone for the film it does you're instantly in an anxiety attack because like I absolutely shit myself when that happened or like oh oh god um and there's just this like underlying fear in this film of what's gonna happen next and you don't quite know um so it's it sets the tone well because like after this point it's it's quite a while till we get to the bloodshed again anything gory 
it's it's basically just building up tension which I think it does really well um so yeah off with a banger shame about the coyote though but I know I know I was I was watching it and I was like oh I know it's the right thing to do but I think I'd find it really hard to do that you know that way I hope they gave it a wee burial in a ceremony or something (laughs) (laughs) but you're right this this film is a bit of a slow burn and when we look at kind of the discrepancy between the audience and critics scoring in this later I think that plays a part in why people maybe have rated it one thing and other people another but anyway they are Will and Kira are en route to his ex-wife's Eden's house with a for a dinner party with her new husband David um, there's various other characters there um, there's Tommy and Miguel they're a little couple um, there's Ben and Claire and Gina is there um, and we're awaiting her boyfriend Choi who is perpetually late <laughs> and we know a few people like that in our friendship group <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we're first introduced to the house and this like crop of characters we find out that as a result of the accidental death of Eden and Will's son Ty, um, Eden and Will split up. Um, she went to a, like a grief support group in Mexico and um, like met this new man David as part of her like grieving process. And um, this is the first time that all this group of friends have been together for two years. So it's quite a big occasion. Yeah, and also, like, I try and think on this, like, would I want to see my ex after that? Because, like, I, because I, they don't have, the, obviously, it's a horrific thing that they went through, like, losing their child. At the same time, because you don't have that child anymore, you don't have ties with that person. So I don't know if I'd want to see them again. Would you? Like, I know people can be friends with their exes, but, like, I don't know if I'd want to go to dinner with them. <laughs> I know what you mean, but I think this is kind of like such an exceptional circumstance. Yeah. Um, I feel like, I think we see it in like real life as well, like when there has been missing child cases or when unfortunately the child has ended up getting murdered as a result of it. I think it either brings you together or the like the trauma of it all like pulls you apart and there's probably still like a lot of love there because at the end of the day they did make a life together but it's just maybe just too hard being around that person anymore it's like the constant reminder of what you lost and you know it it must be very difficult yeah definitely you know that way it's not like a, a normal breakup if they'd like someone's cheated on somebody else although I think she did cheat on him but you know you you understand the strange behavior because of the trauma that she's going through um so yeah I know what you mean it's a tricky one but I'm glad that they're friends after going through such a horrible thing together yeah that's true at this party we're introduced to Sadie who David and Eden met in Mexico um what did what did we think of Sadie because for me 
even just like the clothes that she's wearing the way she's kind of like dressed up as a little girl almost and kind of she she behaves very childlike you can just kind of tell there's something a bit off with her oh yeah you could feel immediately that she's like some way emotionally manipulated by them and also it's the way she's introduced on the screen as well she's just got fanny out and just staring from the hallway which i mean to be fair the first thing i do when i come home from work is take my clothes off because i want to be comfy so a a sis can relate (laughs) but like yeah just everything about her is quite emotionally vulnerable and yeah kind of like childlike like the, it's almost like a nighty kind of thing that she wears and it's very like baby doll kind of esque isn't it yeah it's just uh, it's just a bit weird um so so we already kind of have this very formal dinner party planned out of the blue we have this stranger coming in and who's acting a bit odd and I feel like as well the way Eden descends down the stairs all dressed in white I don't know why but that's like an instant red flag to me as well it's like why are you wearing white there's something like white is like purity and rebirth and you know there's something a bit odd about that choice of dress for me as well that just screams like there's something not right here it's the white dress for me (laughs) also who wears white at dinner party where they're serving red wine as well like I I, I could never I just don't wear white ever. I'm too much of a slitter. Like, just can't do it. A, a what? A slitter. I've never heard that in my life. Or it must be a Galloway word. Like, just <laughs> you make a mess when you're eating. Oh, see, when I think of slit, I think of something else. <laughs> For goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So, like, we already, in the first, like, five, ten minutes, however long this takes, it's like there's already so much anxiety being induced in these moments. And then we we follow Will around the house while he's, like, reliving memories of his former marriage, of his child. And we find out more and more about his relationship with Eden. and kind of tidbits about exactly precisely what happened to tie their son and it's like it's quite sad watching it like because they were so happy together they were and to see that stark difference from then till now like they were really in their own little blissful bubble and the flashback scenes are really sweet even the ones later on the thing that kind of gets me is you know when he's like washing his hands and it looks like it's the little kids hands and they're washing their hands together and I was like oh that's so sweet I know so later in the kitchen um like after Will's kind of relived this horrible memory of Eden attempting suicide um we have this strange interaction between Eden and Ben where he makes a bit of a joke and she just cracks him right on the side of the face. It's um, so unexpected. It is. And then when, like, in the next scene where she's just like, I've forgotten about it, so should you. It's like, what? Like, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I, could, I could imagine you in that situation. You'd just be absolutely, anyone would be raging, but like, how can you just get over it that quickly? And no. 
I remember when I was in high school, like somebody who was my friend, like just she just walked up to me one lunchtime and smacked me clean right across the face. And I was like, what the hell? What? And apparently I had said some remark about her in condoms or something in high school. So that would have been taken very seriously. No recollection of saying this whatsoever. So I didn't speak to her for ages, obviously, because I'm like, I'm not going to talk to someone who like smacked me across the face. And then uh, she started speaking to me again. And I was like, why are you speaking to me? You smacked me across the face. And she was like, I have no recollection of that. She was gaslighting. (laughs) She fucking was. I was like, it was like in the middle of the lunch hall. Like, I've got witnesses. You slapped me across the face. (laughs) She was just like, don't know what you're talking about. Can you believe that? That is insane. That's like that wild. Because we've been speaking so much about euphoria lately. That's like Cassie behavior right now. <laughs> Just gaslighting, like, huh? No, didn't happen. Um, I don't know why that's reminded me. Do you remember as well? Like, it's fucking insane. It was a thing in the UK in schools. There was a thing like happy slapping where people would like record themselves yeah. slapping their friends and stuff. Like, what the fuck was that about? Oh, yeah. And like, I. Well, maybe down here we're a bit rougher than up in Aberdeen because <laughs> we just like video people like beating the shit out of other people and then it would get sent round and stuff. It was bizarre behaviour. Yeah, like we were quite violent as kids between that and games like British Bulldogs and like Manhunt oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Like yeah. millennials are savages. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> What caused Eden to slap Ben is her talking about this way that you can expel pain. You can just, oh, if you just don't think about it, you just don't have it. So it's like another kind of signal that something's a bit off here because, I don't know, I, I find that quite strange behaviour. Like, if oh, I can't imagine if, like, saying that to somebody with, like, fibromyalgia or something, for example, being like, oh, it's all in your head. It's like, thanks for that. That's really fucking helpful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, oh, no shit. Oh, it's all in my head. Oh, that's fine. Just brush it under the carpet. Yeah, that that's that's not going to happen. So um, another one of Eden and David's friends arrive, Pruitt. And I just feel like whenever John Carroll Lynch is saying him, I'm just like, you're going to be so fucking dodgy and weird. Or <laughs> what are you going to do? And um, he... certainly lives up to that expectation later so Will finds that Eden is using uh, barbiturates as well which kind of like plays into his anxiety and our anxiety as well as the audience of like there's something not right here like I don't know if he thinks that she's like an addict or if she's being drugged or like what like what did you think at this moment I don't because part of me is like you shouldn't go through people's possessions like that. Like, I'm kind of like, you shouldn't really be going through somebody's medicine cabinets, but at the same... Sorry. I wouldn't say camera <laughs> <laughs> I'm not having you over. <laughs> I'm not as bad as I used to be, but I would just literally, like, rape through people's drawers. <laughs> Lindsay, you don't do that. I've got, I've got no impulse control. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> just wait till you go oh no you have been to jamie and johnny's new place go save you stifled through all the rooms yet 
<laughs> no, I got the grand tour, but no, I've not had a nosy in every drawer or anything. <laughs> Although they hadn't properly moved in with the last time I saw it. No, same. Um, but yeah, no, that's <laughs> I learned something new about you every day, Lindsay. <laughs> um, part of me is kind of like, yeah, that's fucked up. Don't do that. But at the same time, I get that he's really anxious and he still really cares about Eden. So like... I suppose he's looking out for her best interests. I didn't think that it was like addiction or anything like that, but I thought maybe like, especially because of her issues with her mental health before, maybe there's something there, but I don't know. I was kind of like in the middle because I'm like, eh, you shouldn't do that, but also something might be going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, David and Ethan later gather everyone in the living room and get them to watch this video. I've seen this film a few times and it cracks me up every single time when they get the laptop out. I'm like, Chromecast that onto the telly. Like, come (laughs) on. Like, it's 2015. They had Chromecast in 2015. Like, there's no need to get the laptop cracked out whatsoever. It just just reminds me of those, like, skits where you see people be like, you can buy shares in a villa. And it's like one of those sales scams where it's like, you know, we have in the UK, like, Arbonne, like the pyramid schemes and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they show them, the group, this video of this place that they went to called The Invitation. And it's all about like accepting death and things like that, which would be completely fine. But then this video finishes up with the real life last moments of somebody dying of cancer, which I think we'll all agree is a bit much without asking the group first. Um, how would you have? How would you have reacted to this video? And I think we should also play a game of what, at what point would you have left this party? Oh God! <laughs> well, I'd have left there and then at that point because I'm like, <laughs> first of all, it'd be nice to have a trigger warning. Um, you know, maybe like, kind of, you don't know what everyone's been dealing with in the past two years. You don't know if they've maybe had cancer or somebody in their family has you know what I mean that is the thing about all of this as well because as we later see everybody who is at this party was also there when this wee boy died so obviously and quite rightly Aiden and Will will have like the biggest trauma but these are all witnesses to a child dying as well like it couldn't have been fun for them either and it's like oh first time I've seen you for two years watch this woman die of cancer great icebreaker you know yeah love it um but yeah no I would I would have left after that point I hope you would have left after that point but nosy Lindsay makes me think you might have stayed a bit longer <laughs> I'm so nosy <laughs> I get FOMO I get scared of like missing out if something happens <laughs> and I wasn't there I'd kick myself <laughs> um <laughs> but I think that's also anxiety being like what needed to be in control of the situation but anyway um, so after this, to try and like lighten things up a bit, they can play a game of I won't. Um, so it all starts off kind of innocently as first. Um, I think it's Tommy jokingly says that he wants a blowjob. Um, Gina says that she wants some of that coke that uh, David, a former addict, used to do. Um, Eden gives Ben a kiss, not just a wee peck either, she bloody goes for it. And then Pruitt, <laughs> the absolute killjoy, tells a story about how he killed his wife. <laughs> As you do, you know, up until this point, and I remember it the first time I watched this, I was like, 
are they swingers? Because this is giving big yeah. orgy. This is giving big orgy vibes. A very different movie. I'm sure it exists on Pornhub somewhere. <laughs> uh, but like, it just took a turn real quick after that. But oh, okay. The the this, this dialogue is changing now. I guess. And again, it like it feeds into that anxiety thing because it's all very like up up like jokey fun like happy clappy really like having a wee snog joking about getting a wee blowy um joking about having a line I don't know if she actually does I hope you did Gina Hen um (laughs) and then all of a sudden it's just this really depressing story about this guy who killed his wife and that as well is like so uncomfortable like obviously accidents and stuff can happen like but I don't know do you really want to be in a room with somebody that's killed somebody else yeah like you just feel so uncomfortable at that point and then it's kind of like who's the first person that's gonna leave as well because you know after that we get somebody that is but you're kind of like you're probably waiting for other people to say it's not okay you know what I mean so there's that kind of awkward tension in the room as well yeah so Claire the only one with a brain in her head is like I'm out like she's super uncomfortable and she just wants to get out of there and on the second watch you can see the kind of how desperate David really is to get her to stay Uh, because on the first watch you know obviously you're not expecting what happens although you can feel that something's going to happen um and you're just like, it's just that way, you know, when someone leaves the pub early or whatever, they're like, oh, I've got a headache. Like, oh, no, stay, come on. And you just think it's that. But it feels, excuse me, it feels so much more sinister on like a second, third watch. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. You can really tell like how he's trying to hide it. Like he's trying to be like, no, you, you're you're staying. You're staying mm. or you're getting yeeted. Um, so when you watch it a second time, it's just the body language and his facial expression as well. You can see in the room as well, other people are getting a bit uncomfortable and it's like, it's not that typical thing where it's usually me, I'll leave early on a night out and somebody be like, oh, right, okay, come on, stay. And then, you know, you know when to give it up, but he just doesn't mm. know when to let it go. Yeah. And it's not really until Will is like, if she wants to go, let her go, that he kind of drops it. Um, so Pruitt says that he's blocking Claire's car in and Will again is like so feels so much weird energy around this guy that he is watching the window to make sure that Claire's okay and David later confronts Will about his he calls it confrontational behaviour towards his friend Um, do you do you think Claire has survived this because there is a bit of a debate online about whether Pruitt like you know took her out outside or if she has actually managed to drive away and she like her Tommy Kira and Will are the only survivors of this oh no I'm convinced she's gone she she got a thunk to the head like I also love the way this is shot because like you see you think that she's getting away and then like the car the, like the I don't know what it is but there's like a a wall or something so like you can see the back of the car but you can't see the front and mm. then Pruitt comes and goes round to the passenger side to chat to her and like 
you're thinking oh he's using that as a chance to get her because like nobody can see and I thought that was really inventive actually I've never seen anything like that but I don't know about you I'm convinced she's dead so um they after Claire leaves they go for dinner and you know you can kind of feel it like Will's just generally feeling a bit overwhelmed he takes a moment to go outside and uh, Sadie follows him and just asks him like outright do you do you want to fuck (laughs) and it's again it's like there's something so uneasy about this film but see like unpredictable characters like Sadie like because she just seems so like wired and you don't know what she's gonna do like those people give me the heebie-jeebies I'd be terrified to be around her because you don't know how she's going to react one minute to the next. Exactly. I mean, we love open communication. I mean, if you want to fucking you ask for ask for consent, fair enough, fill your boots. But like, yeah, just her emotional range is constantly going up and down and up and down. So you're kind of like, oh God, what's she going to do? So um, whilst Will is still outside, he manages to get a mobile phone signal something that many of the characters have kind of had a bit of a moan about throughout the film that they have no signal on their phones and he gets a voicemail from Choi um Gina's boyfriend who's still not arrived and um he says in the voicemail that he's just about to step over the door at Eden and David's house I could will go and pick up um the dessert because he's forgot and this just sends Will like absolutely haywire. I think we've all had those moments where we feel like we've had our anxiety confirmed. And we just, oh, it's not going off on one, but when you feel like you've had it confirmed and you're just like super highly strung and trying to communicate that feeling, it can be quite flysome for the other people on the receiving end of it because it's not like you you're gonna talk it's not like you deliver your speech when you're in an anxiety-ridden state in a calm manner like it's very frantic and like he really gives everybody at this party a, like quite a scare because he's convinced that Eden and David have done something very sinister to Choi. I don't blame him because like you know we we both suffer from anxiety and it's very much a spiral or at least for me anyway it's a spiral and it's a cycle um and when because you know a lot of people will say your anxiety like it's just all in your head it's all in your head but then when you have something confirmed it just makes that spiral go times a thousand and you go like in a fight or flight kind of instinct so you're not going to be able to like speak your emotions eloquently I mean when I'm anxious like I don't talk I shut down um and other people just scream (laughs) so like I can't really blame him for that because like it's very relatable so Will starts asking questions about Choi like he starts being like asking questions about this cult like he's extremely concerned about the safety of his his friends like everybody who's there Choi who's not there and then like clockwork Choi just like turns up and Will is just like so embarrassed because he's like he feels like he's let the emotions of the occasion get the best of him 
completely like understandable emotions but he's so embarrassed that he's upset all of his friends and like everybody's like really cool about it they're just like you know he's in his son's home like the place where he lost his son for the first time in two years um and over the course of this we get like the flashbacks to what actually happened and it turns out there seems to have been some incident with a bat um and another child um complete accident and ties ended up passing away as a result which is really sad yeah it's horrible so um will goes to ty's bedroom just to kind of connect with his son and just kind of like calm down a bit as well um but over the course of this will finds a a laptop with a message from this dr joseph who is the mastermind behind the invitation and he gets yet again another like horrible feeling that something something's about bad is about to happen um when did like the alarm bell start ringing off for you that this was going to be like a a mass suicide slash mass murder type cult situation I mean I kind of got culty vibes and like mass murder vibes before with um is it clip is it Claire that wanted to go and then we have that Mm. car scene I kind of already got it then and like there's been a couple times like previously where there's um some of that um some of the characters say it's a cult it's a cult and I wasn't sure if it was like a cult per se um we didn't really have much information so it's kind of hard to go off of but then at that point it's kind of like okay this is like some kind of like it's definitely an organized group I didn't know if it's going to be like mass suicide I thought it was just going to be like you know like a killing party almost kind of like um ready or not you know where it's just like kill all our friends for for the bands apparently um so yeah what about you probably confirmed at this point right I mean yeah absolutely like if it's not confirmed now the next scene certainly does it but um yeah, it's just the way like Eden and David talk. They talk in like very like airy fairy, like flowery language and you know, this perpetual like, I'm so happy. And, like in the midst of something really traumatic happening, like you feel like these are not people who have dealt with their trauma. Um and of course because they've gone through something so horrible, they're like prime for someday to take advantage of them in a vulnerable state and you know convince them that this this is what they should do because like it's such a shame like I know we'll get onto it towards the end but if this is the way that David and Eden felt and Sadie and Pruitt they could have just had a dinner party the four of them I don't know why they had to involve everybody else yeah there wasn't really a need was there it's like what is the purpose of getting these how many other people is it like six yeah it's a big group like six or eight other people to die as well like what what was the purpose of that we don't really know but I guess it's like we don't really need to know because you know cults just cult like they change the rules all the time like we've seen this with like they reference people's temple and charles manson and stuff like Mm -hmm. that like they start off as one thing and end as something completely different um 
and it's never with the best of intentions for the congregation is it it's always for some man it's always a fucking man at the top to profiteer from it um so yeah will sees this message um he sees david light a red lantern in the garden and then he pours drinks for the guests to do a toast and what catches will's attention is that all other drinks have been poured from a bottle but this is being poured from a decanter so makes a bit iffy like why is this drink so different that would give me red flags straight away even like if I wasn't really suspicious of someone like why would you do that like I think anyone would be like that's a bit weird you know yeah exactly so Will like starts smashing glasses and everybody again is just like oh you know he's like being overly anxious what's going on and there's a bit of a tussle and Sadie and Will sorry pushes Sadie and she hits her head like off a cabinet and there's something in the background going phone 999 phone 999 or 911 rather and um they're like no not for Sadie and then we turn around and Gina has been poisoned she took a sip of the wine and nobody else has and this confirms it so like the first time I watched this I was like I was like really shocked even though it is kind of expected like it has all been like building to this the fact that Will's been right the whole time and it's not often as a person who is anxious that the thing you're really anxious about is actually proven right (laughs) as well is it no usually nine times out of ten it's like oh it's just my brain being an arsehole to me yep um but Will has been right this whole time like he he has picked up on something being off about this whole event and he's been right and one of his friends has died as a result well one for now yeah for now (laughs) so in the midst of all this like everybody finding out what's happened um Miguel yeah it's Miguel um I think he must be like a paramedic or maybe has first aid trainer but he's trying to help Sadie then he rushes over to Gina to try and do CPR and like revive her it's it's not happening Gina's away unfortunately um and Pruitt shoots him just kickstarting this whole kind of chasing between like Pruitt and David and everybody else it turns into like a bloodbath so quickly because up until this point we're like an hour in the film and we haven't had any gore besides the coyote so it's just been a build-up a build-up and I think that just adds to it so much because as you said up until this point you're so anxious and then it all kicks off so quickly yeah it does but I like that there's quite a bit of time at the end of this film for this kind of chasing I think it's like a good half hour this whole like third act of the film lasts which I'm quite glad about um you know the film's like what an hour and 40 and as much as it's like a kind of slow build I don't think that like there's any like dead moments per se no there's enough going on to be like I think that's the thing with a slow build like you have to have weird tidbits to like keep the brain active and be like oh I wonder when I'll need to use that bit of information or that bit of information because sometimes slow builds are just slow and it can be a bit of a slog to get to like a really good ending if there is one but I think with this one it is 
it is a slow build but there's enough to kind of keep the cogs turning keep you keep you focused keep you interested that it is like really satisfying to get to this point and then the ending as well so David and Pruitt between them they kill Miguel Choi and Ben um I well, the first time I watched this I was like I can't believe they killed the two Asians and the gay couple like straight off the bat but luckily Tommy's not dead and um, yes. he's just he's just been given like he's just been slashed with a knife so he for the most part is okay um and the three of them hide in various parts of the house and um Will overhears David speaking to Eden that they have been chosen and the only way to finish what they started and leave the earth and be free of their pain is to like kill the rest of the group because that's what the whole point of this night for them was but at this point Eden is distraught like she didn't she really wants to get rid of her pain and she I think she just wanted everyone to just like drink the wine and like die peacefully but this isn't like this is not her vision this like violence in her house is not her like fantasy at all it's not part of my fantasy (laughs) it's not (laughs) but you can also I think like they've said multiple times up until this point like she's been planning this for the past two years she's put a lot of prep into this so you can imagine how much it meant to her as well so for everything to just not go her way her mental state must just be completely all over the place if it wasn't already which probably was (laughs) it's already pretty fragile but I think this is just kind of taking her over the edge and I I feel like you see that with the way she decides to take her own life in the end she shoots herself in the stomach which has got to be one of the most painful deaths and then just bleeds out to the point where she's upstairs for quite a while on her own while um Will deals with David and then asks that like she has a conversation with Will then asks to be taken outside which her him Kida and Tommy all do and and then she says another sentence and then she dies so it's like a really long long painful horrible death that she gives herself but I think just with everything that's happened I don't know if she maybe thinks she deserves that yeah I feel like she's in so much emotional pain and she probably does blame herself a little bit for the you know the death of her child so she feels like she has to go out this way especially as well probably because you know the way that they had originally planned it with poison everybody at the same time because everything's happened in a much more brutal way she probably maybe feels some guilt for that as well, that everything's gone completely wrong. So she feels like she deserves it. Yeah. Um, but I was jumping ahead a wee bit there because before all that happens, um, Pruitt catches up to Will and Kira. So if I had like one com- like major complaint about this film, I feel like Kira's like majorly underutilised. As someone who is currently with Will, you know, they're in love, they're partners, and Will's going through this really tricky situation. And I feel like for much of the film, she's just there. I really wish the like the writers or Karen Kasama would have given her a bit more to do because I feel like she shines like in this last moment when they work together 
like yeah. I love it so much um the way they're both like sticking up for each other and protecting one another and even like there's tidbits of it like throughout the night like he's just like I'm just waiting to die like he's you know so depressed he's like says if he feels like there's a scream trapped inside of me and she just really wants to help him and he really wants to be a good partner to her as well um so I kind of love this moment where Kira is the one who batters Pruitt to death with this wine bottle because she fucking goes for it I was just like yes queen like (laughs) good for her yes exactly um I was also thinking as well I was like I could pick them as my couple goals because they actually are like the way they support each other so yeah I was really happy to see Pruitt bite the dust um and at the end of the film, we have Will, Kira and Tommy outside. You know, Tommy's obviously really upset about his boyfriend, Miguel, uh, being killed. And they all have a big hug. And he's like, I'm going to go inside and like get Miguel. Uh, and you think that's the end of the film. But then you see the, these like red lights kind of reflecting on both of their faces. And the mm-hmm. camera pans to the rest of the Hollywood Hills. And there's loads of these red lanterns like all over the shop. And you can hear gunshots and screaming and police sirens. And it turns out that this is happening like all across the Hollywood Hills. It's not just this household, which kind of is a lovely little twist at the end to just like, like blow your mind further because it's already horrible enough what these people have been through. And then to think it's like happening all over LA is wild. I love this ending. It's just chef's kiss. Um, it also is quite a nice commentary because like, you know, they're living on the Hollywood Hills. So they're obviously very, very wealthy as well. So it's almost kind of like that conversation we had with like Ready or Not, where like power and money can kind of like buy you anything. And I think like, you know, we see a lot of cults when it comes to the 1% and the wealthy. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. There's also another film that's based in LA that like, this doesn't give it away, but this ending gives very similar vibes to it. It's 1BR that has Naomi Grossman in it. I actually got to interview her about this film like last year. And it's got that same kind of connotation about LA and the dark kind of seediness side of it and like the horror of Hollywood. And it's got that kind of messaging. So it's nice to see that here. And like you say, you don't expect it. You don't expect this ending at all. No, and I think that's what makes it so good. And I think as well, it's what takes it from being something that's just like a good film to a great film. Just this one little thing at the end. It takes it from like good to great. Um, so I I really love it. It also kind of sets it up a little bit for a sequel if they wanted. Like it's not too sequel baby, but they could. Yeah, absolutely. Like they could they could franchise this film and just have we could visit every single household on that night and see what happened. But I'm kind of glad Karen Kusama is not the kind of filmmaker that would do that. Yeah. So have you got anything else that you want to say about the invitation? Um, I'm just having a nosy at trivia. So this was Karen Kusama's first film in seven years, actually. So she'd taken a bit of a break 
and this was um kind of her comeback film which I thought was quite cool um Zachary Quinto was originally cast in this I don't know what he was cast as though yeah I was like I read that as well like Luke Wilson Johnny Galecki um, and a whole lot of other people like quite well-known actors were cast in this film but I'm kind of glad that they went in a different direction because like I know I know some of the actors in this film but they're not like big A-list stars and I think it kind of adds to this like this could happen anywhere type vibe like they just seem like normal people yeah because if they put it as like a big all-star cast which we see a lot in mainstream cinema like all a-listers when it's a big ensemble cast like this and because it's set in the hollywood hills it just kind of be a little bit predictable if they did it that way yeah okay so let's get on to box office which for this film like i find quite interesting um so there was no like big studio backing for this film so it was made for a million dollars, but because there was no big studio back in it, didn't really get much of a cinema release. So it only made um, like just over 350k in box office. So this really ended up finding its home on streaming and kind of like word of mouth. And that's how people have kind of got to know about it rather than the traditional like going to the cinema method. Um, which I think with the next one we discuss is like a big difference between them because yeah like I only found out about this film like a couple of years ago and it's it's been out for a while yeah and I only found out about it through like Netflix I can't believe it only made that though 350k that's insane and like with that budget you could kind of argue it's an indie film because a million is really not much no but and that's what makes me wonder as well about like all these like big big stars it's like if they only had such a small budget like would they really have been able to like pay them all and stuff like that um (laughs) I keep thinking about that and put gems meme it's like and things like that (laughs) and things like that (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so yeah like I'm so glad that kind of like the quality of this film has like pulled through and like a lot of people know about it a lot of people watch it I see people recommending it and stuff online all the time so I'm glad that it's getting the recognition it deserves um because yeah without streaming I don't think anybody would have would know about this film yeah and it'd be such a shame to not see it get the recognition it deserves because it's a really interesting plot it's not anything we've really seen before especially with the ending that it has it'd be sad to not see it get like the love it should yeah exactly um okay so let's get into the ratings so what I was saying before about there being a bit of there's a bit of a discrepancy between the audience ratings and critics ratings so IMDB have rated this a 6.6 out of 10 the Rotten Tomatoes critics have rated this an 89% and the audience have rated it a 69% oh so so there's like quite a difference there but I think that really is down to the fact that it is kind of a slow burn and not everybody is on board with that um, I know I certainly can be like if I'm not entertained in the first 10 minutes I'm going to turn it off but I do feel like there's enough in this film to like keep you going and kind of you know have you asking the questions like 
like what's going on here and being really curious to find out about it but some other people obviously didn't think that each to their own I suppose Uh, I love a slow burn but like I wouldn't say this is too much of a slow burn because it's not even that long of a film but no it's not for everyone no no that's it this is the same with a lot of films I suppose but I do think it's like with the with the budget and then the kind of like critical reception I think it goes back to me again for being like it's Ken Kusama, like, she's directed a lot of good shit. Why is she not getting the studio back in? Why is she not getting a bigger budget for a film like this? You know, why is she not getting a cinema release? Why is she not a bigger name that she should be automatically getting a big cinema release? Like, these things are a bit, like, odd to me. Like, do you not think? Yeah, we've seen people with a lot less reputation like people with a lot less to show in their kind of filmography and with questionable plot lines get huge budgets or like it's Netflix money so like they can make a Netflix original and they get like a shit ton of money for it whatever cast they want and it's like they've really worked here with a really small budget a really inventive plot and as you said it's Karen, Karen Kusama. Like, surely that's enough to get a cinema release. I'm really surprised because, as you know, let's said I hadn't seen this in 2015, so I didn't know it. It, it didn't go into the cinema, but it bloody should have. Yeah, no, I agree. So, with that being said, uh, Lucy, what do you rate the invitation out of ten? I was going a bit back and forth on this, but I think because the ending is so good I think it bumps it up a little bit so I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten I think it's a really good film it's really interesting um I don't mind the slow burn I suppose the only thing for me is just because it is quite a big ensemble cast which you, I mean we talked about this last week <laughs> well with an ensemble class that was much bigger and not done as great with the thing from another world <laughs> <laughs> all, all 500 of the cast yeah um but I think I still think this is a really good film I'd recommend anyone to watch this I think it's a really underrated horror not enough people talk about it so yeah eight out of ten yeah I'm in the same boat I think uh this is an eight out of ten as well um I think it's a really interesting horror film like I really like horror films that are kind of based somewhat in reality and the fact that this is kind of a horror film about anxiety really appeals to me because obviously that is something that is somewhat tangible um to me uh and it makes it relatable and it just kind of goes to show that horror movie is more than like scary ghosts and demons and like big scary serial killers that can't seem to die like this is such like a kind of out there film in terms of what you think of think of horror um so I really appreciate that as well I mean personally the horror that I find the most scary is the ones that are based in real life and like real emotions and situations because you can see yourself in that Uh, so with that being said do you want to take us through the Babadook Lucy yes Samuel, I don't want you to die. It isn't real. It isn't real. It's just a book. 
shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Babadook-duck-duck. to scare you first then you'll see it this monster thing has got to stop you can't get rid of the pepper dog Babadook, which <laughs> I can't go over when we were doing the notes for this earlier. I accidentally kept putting in Google Babacock. Um, thank God safe search was on Google. <laughs> Praise the Google gods. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the IMVD plot for Babadook is as follows. A single mother and her child fall into a deep well of paranoia when an eerie children's book titled Mr. Babadook manifests in their home. This film was released just a year before The Invitation, actually, in 2014. It was directed and written by Jennifer Kent. The cast uh, includes Essie Davis, Noah Wiseman and Daniel Henshaw. I think I can confidently say you've probably seen this before, Lindsay, but can you recall, like, how you felt when you first watched it? So I watched this for the first time, like, a year or two ago. And I wasn't sure what I was expecting because I was frequently told that this film was shit. Like, and I was like, oh, like, it's a big film. I remember when it came out, all the like hubbub and stuff around it. It was like a big, big film in 2014. So I was like, nah, like, I'm definitely going to watch it. And I was like, really blown away. Um, I'd never really seen kind of... I feel like this is specifically like female trauma. Like you can't, I you can't swap out Amelia for, um. Oh God, what was dad's name? Oscar. Like if it had been Amelia yeah. that died instead of Oscar, this would have been a completely different film, because everybody would have felt sorry for him. Um. So I'd never seen like women's trauma, motherhood, like grief, depression portrayed in this way before. And I remember just having a big old greet after I watched it because I was just so emotional because it just it really hit me in the feels. I think, like, you're so right there. Anyone that watches this film that's a woman or, like, a femme person can relate to this film on some level, whether it's depression, PTSD, grief, or just the sheer trauma of what it means to be a woman or to be mm. a mother. The thing that I really like about this film as well is that, you know, in horror, when we see mothers, a lot of the time, they're like immediately the villain straight away. And or they're like the the heroic mother that's just wanting to save their serial killer child or whatever. But I feel like with Amelia, I don't know about you, but I go back and forth because like you really feel sympathy for her because of everything she's been through. But then obviously we get these really high tension scenes with her kid, Samuel. And you also feel for Samuel because even though he's a little shit, he's also only a kid. So like, it's not black and white. See, that was the thing that like anybody who ever was like to me, oh, this film's terrible. They would always point to the son and they're like, the son's so annoying. And then I watched it and I'm just like, anybody who ever told me that this film is shit clearly does not have an ounce of empathy in their body because... Like, he's obviously coded as autistic, which 
can't be easy as a kid and then on top of that like his mum is so clearly depressed like she's very offish with them like can be quite cold with them at times and he's a young kid he's going to pick up on all of that so he's getting that like trauma as well and then just kind of like the loneliness and the isolation he feels like everybody around him is like you're weird like there's something wrong with you and that's not good for kids like to be told like such negative things all the time so yeah I I definitely don't hate Samuel I feel a bit sorry for him yeah exactly and as you said he is consistently coded in this film as being neurodivergent or more specifically autistic and just the sheer trauma like you know the circumstances in which he was born which we'll get into in a second you know even as a child, the guilt you must feel of that. And this poor kid is demonized by everyone around him. So I do feel for him because at the end of the day, he's just a kid. I mean, like, yeah, they, they both are. Like, oh, excuse me. Like, the way she's just basically told all the time to, like, get over it. And it's just, like, losing losing someone is traumatic. Losing a husband is probably even more traumatic. Giving birth is traumatic, um, in every sense of the word whether it's like a, a, just a, like a happy healthy like smooth process your body's going through trauma but then to lose your husband go through the trauma of birth and grief all at the same time and it feels like not a single fucking person has helped this woman one little bit her sister is a cunt oh her sister oh she's such a cow when like samuel's like oh i'll phone on to claire i was like don't phone claire she's a cunt (laughs) absolute cunt Uh, there doesn't seem to be any grandparents on the scene like we don't hear like anything about his parents even either her parents like it's it's really shit for this woman you know it'll be so many other people in her situation like if they're like working class and one of the parents like passes away or ends up out of work or whatever it's just really like trudging along to survive and you don't really get the time to deal with it and that's what I feel like for Amelia she doesn't get the time to deal with what's happened to her um and then in turn that affects her son because I mean they're together all the time of course it's going to affect him exactly and also on top of everything else the postnatal depression as well is very real and she would have been experiencing that on top of everything else too right well we'll get into the plot anyway because I feel we will talk around this a lot throughout the film but let's let's get into the plot so we start off with Amelia and kind of as we've already alluded to she's um a troubled and exhausted widow she's living in the Australian city of Adelaide and she's bringing up Samuel who's only six years old like he's he's a very young kid I feel like people forget that sometimes um the actor who also plays him is also six which is very unusual I think they were looking for somebody like eight or nine but Noah Wiseman was just great so they they stuck with him and he's absolutely fantastic throughout this film he is um, and as we kind of already mentioned, so we have Oscar, who is Amelia's late husband, and he was killed in a car accident that occurred as he was driving Amelia to the hospital during labour. Now, that whole plot line just, you can't even begin to imagine how she must feel in that moment. Exactly. Like, talk about like every stressful situation happening at once. 
it's just not even that they both get injured it's like she's fine the baby's fine but he's dead like it's just awful and you can kind you can understand why she would have this resentment towards her son it's this whole dichotomy of you know you're told you're supposed to love your children and all this and they're like the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life and all this stuff and you put them on a pedestal but at the same time it's also part of the reason of why you don't have your other half anymore so it's like mm. just that whole back and forth going on in her mind like yeah it's it's insane um so sam starts um displaying some like erratic behavior he starts becoming an insomniac he's not he's not getting any sleep and is preoccupied with an imaginary monster known as mr babadook um he's also building weapons to fight the Babadook um, and Emilia is forced to pick him up from school when he brings in a weapon um, and he asks his mum to read the story Mr Babadook so we get the the story and it's like this like pop-up book and we start to see these like illustrations of this tall pale-faced humanoid who's in like a top hat he's got these long talon fingers like what do you think of this setup and like the whole like visual style of the pop-up book because like this also reminded me of when we went to the cinema last year to see Candyman mm, kind of that oh, aesthetic yeah. in the end isn't it what did you think of this like um bit here yeah I like it's such an interesting way to do it because obviously like being scared of monsters like in your room have like been a bit scared of the dark or whatever it's such like a like a normal fear for a child to have um so to kind of have this like book that's come out of nowhere as well because that's like some people complain like how does she not know where the book has come from it's like she's a busy lady like she's not going to be keeping a catalogue of every single book in the house is she um so like reading this book that ends up being the embodiment of what um Sam's been seeing it's like a really clever way to introduce us to like this like spooky spooky um you know it's not like evil dead that we did like a few weeks ago and they're gonna find something in the in the basement or whatever like it makes total sense that this thing is going to come out via a children's book because that is what makes the most sense in these people's lives um so I thought it was like quite clever that way as well yeah definitely it's not it's not what you would you would expect um and the thing that I really like about this film as well, it's like, it's not gory. Like, there's not really any gore to this at all, but this whole kind of the, the monster in the closet kind of thing, like, I don't know. I find that quite creepy, even though, like, I'm not a big fan of Supernatural. I find the Babadook terrifying. And, like, when we do get the reveal, please tell me you shit yourself every time, because I do. <laughs> it's not like a big, like, <gasps> like jump scare type thing. It's just, like, like it's just this like eerie feeling like comes up your body like gives you like the shivers like oh it's almost like the invisible man you know when we know there's something there but you can't see it yeah and that's almost scarier um so yeah sam is really obsessed with the babadook he keeps like having sleepless nights and saying like he wants to protect his mom like the babadook's coming for them and there's a couple of weird things that happen in the house. So the doors are opening and closing by themselves. There's um, like this like 
trench coat and shoes like hanging on one of the coat hangers I find that really fucking creepy I don't know mm-hmm. top hats and long coats are really like <laughs> somebody's not wearing them they're just kind of creepy yeah um so she attributes this um behavior to, to the book um so she rips up the book and disposes of it um you know she's like you're not having this anymore and then we meet the cunt of all cunts which is, <laughs> she, she fucking is Amelia's sister um I think her name's like Claire and she has yeah. she has the audacity to say to her like it's been seven years like you should get over yourself you can't tell anyone how long to grieve she does not give a shit about her sister does she no I just like felt like with that statement it's like if Amelia's been left like this for seven years then clearly the people around her have not been doing their job because I don't feel like she would be in that state if she had people that she could talk to around her if she had sufficient help um with childcare and things like that like just like people checking in on her friends like family I don't think she would be like this um so yeah Claire's a cow Claire's a cow <laughs> um because on top of it as well like she says like I don't you know she doesn't visit and she says it's because I can't stand your son it's like that's your nephew I know <laughs> it's so savage and as well with him being like Cody's is autistic as well that's so fucked up it is don't do that people like just no um and whilst they're having this conversation we also have Ruby who I'm sorry but Apple doesn't really fall far from the tree because she's been oh, a bit of an arsehole and all she's a little bitch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, like Amelia you don't need your family just like tell them to get to fuck um, she fucking deserved to get pushed out that treehouse like I'm not trying to be funny I think she did <laughs> she, she I probably would have said if Sam was my kid I'd be like all right she was being a cow like don't push people maybe just shout at her next time like <laughs> yeah. but she was being a little cow she deserved that <laughs> it was one of those conversations where like you rip into them like in front of the kid but then you tell them afterwards like actually it wasn't that bad she kind of deserved it <laughs> Although, like, just to like roll back for a second, this whole party is so fucking weird anyway because there's, like, the mothers meeting around the table and there's that one who's like, oh, I work with disadvantaged women and um, talking about, like, how hard our life is and stuff where there's Amelia working in a care home. I've worked in a care home. It's fucking shit. Um, it's really hard work. She's got this son that she's just, like doesn't really know what to do with she's dealing with all these like all this grief and depression and all of these other mental health issues and she's got somebody moaning about how she can't go to the gym like oh that would wind me up it's just the audacity and I I worked in a care well that was the first job I ever had was working in a care home not as a carer mind you but like nobody realizes how hard it is to work in a Mm. care home so undervalued underpaid also her work don't give a shit about her either because when she calls in sick they're like all right we're giving your shifts away you're a single working mom but tough yeah exactly there's such a cow as well when she has to go to the school about her child and it's just like she's not planned this like nobody plans for this 
feels like the world against Amelia at this point. Very really. much so. Um, so after this, um, they're driving home and Sam has another vision of the Babadook and he suffers a seizure. So Amelia takes him to the doctor and gets sedatives for him, also for, for her as well. Um, and then we have this scene where she's finally getting sleep and like it's like this slow-mo of her falling down onto the bed and I'm like oh that's me after the gym when I'm shattered I don't know or like after a long day of work it just looks so peaceful and like she needs it and I'm like yes you deserve that sleep yes I she does look dead cozy um so the next morning Amelia finds the book reassembled because previously you know she ripped it up and burnt it and everything and it has new words on it that says the Babadook's going to become stronger if she continues to deny its existence and it has pop-ups of it you know of her killing their dog Bugsy and Sam and then herself so uh, sorry she'd ripped it up before but at this point she burns it and then she goes to the police and as we know especially in horror the police are no fucking help um you know she's expl- no fucking help in real life no this is true <laughs> Um, she says to them about the book she also had a phone call where she's just hearing this like eerie babadook see when they laughed at her oh the rage that went through my body because you could see that she's like really scared and they're just like who the fuck are you laughing at (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that reminds me of the text who are you laughing at don't fucking laugh at me (laughs) (laughs) and of course it's two men I'm sorry but yeah so yeah she gets no help from the police you know when she goes and tells them about the whole situation um because she's saying like they're saying that you have no proof of this happening so jog on hen um and she sees the Babadook suit hanging up behind the front desk of the police uh one of the (gasps) police officers that's so creepy isn't it that is so creepy oh god I hate that Oh, shivers down your spine um and at this point we really start to see Amelia just become more and more emotionally unhinged and I have to say Essie Davis is fucking fantastic in this the acting that she does in this as Amelia because I mean we do have other characters like the sister and stuff like that but most of this film is Essie and Noah and I feel yeah. like the both of them together like it's honestly Oscar worthy in my opinion but Obviously, it's the Oscars, so they're not going to recognise a horror film, are they? No, especially not one that's, like, non-American either. But, um, yeah, I was, like, extra surprised by Essie Davis in this because I knew her from Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, something my mum used to watch all the time. It's this, like, Australian, like, crime show. It's set in the 20s, and Miss Fisher is just this, like, super glam, like, 1920s woman. She's always wearing flapper dresses and stuff. She's always just, like, looks absolutely stunning. But she's also, like, the best detective in Australia, so she solves all the murders. And just seeing her go from, like, this, like, super glam, like, in-control like strong woman to Amelia is like just the complete opposite I like it took me a minute to like figure out it was her because she just plays each character so well and they're so different from one another I've never heard of that show but we love rage (laughs) we do (laughs) 
Um, so after this point, yeah, Amelia starts becoming more and more emotionally unhinged, really like kind of shutting herself and Samuel in. And this is where she starts to lose her temper with Samuel as well, because like she is, I mean, she's completely exhausted. They've had no sleep at all. I mean, you don't have sleep. Like she's also losing track of time as well. Like she'll sit down and watch something on the TV and then it's the next morning. And like emotionally, she's just very much all over the place. So we have this scene where Samuel comes up to her and says like, you know, I'm hungry. And she tells, like, I don't know why I'm laughing, but she tells him to eat shit. It's funny though. <laughs> it's so- funny the way it just comes out of nowhere. But it's, I think it's like a nervous laugh. Like it's like you're surprised by it rather than it like actually being funny. But I laughed as well. I was like, oh my God. Because you feel like she's shouting at you as well. So I'm like, mom, we're going to do that right now. We've all had those moments with like a parent before where they lose the plot with you. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one that laughed. <laughs> Um, so basically, yeah, she tells him basically like eat shit, gets really angry at him. But then she does realize like what she did. So she comes through and apologizes. Samuel's having none of it till she says, Oh, do you want some ice cream for breakfast? And then, oh my God, this family in the other booth behind them, like I would have lost the plot. I don't know how she didn't. Oh, I know, like oh. It's so bad, but I hate it when there's like unruly children at the like the restaurant or the cafe or something because you don't want to say anything. Like obviously, parents are just trying their best, but when you're trying to go there for like nice quiet coffee or something, or like just like a nice meal and a catch up, and you just hear like screaming behind you, oh, it drives me a bit crazy. Or it's like the crying baby on a flight as well. Oh, I'm lucky I've never had that, but yeah don't bring babies on flights like it, it distresses them it puts them through a lot their wee years popping and that it's not fair on them it's not fair on everybody else exactly the last flight I went to like pre just before COVID to Florida there was a baby that was crying the entire time there pretty much and I felt bad for them at the same time I'm like just shut up please. yeah there's like absolutely no need for you to bring a baby on a flight because no. it's that way as well it's like especially if you're British it's like you're like oh I really want to go on holidays go to Butlins like you can take yeah. them in the car and you know if the weather's good it's like being in Spain so take them with Butlins there's absolutely no need for you to take like your baby on holiday with with you because they get nothing out of it absolutely nothing exactly I, I don't understand these parents that spend thousands to take their kids to Disneyland when they're not going to remember it they're too young and it's like what is the actual point yeah yeah better to go and like when they're like eight nine ten like they're going to remember it then exactly and butlins is brilliant i'm sorry but low-key it's actually all right <laughs> i've never been but like i just know that's like holiday park in the uk and the day entertainment and that as well don't they yeah you get like dance classes and all loads of stuff we'll go i'll take it <laughs> Um, but after this point, um, yeah, like they go, they go out for for breakfast and all this kind of stuff, um, and then you know she's becoming more and more emotionally unhinged. She's in the bath, like she has this quite like it's a very kind of terrifying like calmness to her, and it's like this creepy smile and everything like that. And Samuel picks this up and he's like, "Oh, I need to call someone." So he's asking about Colin. 
the neighbor he's asking about Colin um Auntie Claire and he does I think he calls the neighbor yeah and then Amelia just loses it and um you know uses a knife and like cuts the phone line pretty much and is like don't embarrass me can I just say that neighbor is like the absolute angel of my life yeah when she shouted at her and I know it's just because she's obviously going through it but when Amelia shouts at her it hurts my soul like she's such a nice woman and when she's like I really love you and Sam I'm like I believe you (laughs) I'd love her as a neighbor you know I know she's so nice have a little cup of tea you know on the weekend check in on her bless um and she starts having these like really disturbing hallucinations where she violently murders Sam and like you know killing children is such a taboo but also it being a parent doing it it's like even Mm. it's a whole nother level of disturbing um and after these visions Amelia sees like this apparition of Oscar who offers to return her if she brings the boy to him realizing that this is a creation of the Babadook um and so she's fleeing the house and at this point the Babadook like possesses her and we have this like throughout these next coming scenes as well she's like touching her jaw and stuff like that because it's gone through her mouth like Mm. what did you think of like this whole setup and like the apparitions and the visions and this more like supernatural element to the Babadook um I really liked it because like again like kind of bringing it back to some of its core themes about like mental illness and grief and stuff like that it's sometimes you can't really trust your brain when you're going through that you know you have lapses in concentration and in memory you maybe like repeat tasks that you've done before or like completely forget to do something because you think you've already done it and it's this way that her like her brain seems to be tricking her felt like I completely understood it and it like felt like things that I've been through before because like that that is what it's like I I feel like like a lot of this leading up to it as well like the way she becomes like very isolated and shut in and she's very cold with Sam and she goes from being like extremely irritable to like trying to make peace with Sam and it's like I get that because it's like that's that's how I feel sometimes it's like sometimes I just want to like watch the world burn burn and fucking shut myself in my room alone not even the pets and I'm like everybody get away from me so it's like I felt very understood by the way Amelia is being portrayed yeah definitely I completely agree with you there I think anyone that's dealt with depression PTSD anything along those lines can relate to that you know like sometimes we just we need to be in our own heads for a bit and you just don't want people around you I, I'm I'm terrible for that like I shut myself off a lot um and I think it's very easy to spiral you know when you like don't leave the house for a couple of days and then it's a week and then like your mind begins to wander and all this stuff so I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to and then I think this well it's an additional element for me anyway like this like Amelia's a mum like she Mm -hmm. unfortunately she can't just like get away from Sam like no I'm lucky I'm a single person I can't just like shut myself away she can't do that and that's why 
she's having this like horrible like outwardly reaction to him because he's a burden to her almost right now like she really does need like if you take like the Babadook out of it because obviously there is a debate as to whether the Babadook's actually real or Mm -hmm. if it is just like something used to kind of explain her depression if you get what I mean yeah but she's a mom like she can't just shut him out like she because she has to look after Sam and also deal with this like beast as well so I think it's like it's a really like cool way of showing that the fact that we have like an actual Babadook to kind of be like this is the depression that I have to deal with and then there's my actual human child that I have to look after as well yeah that's so true because it's not about her anymore like the minute you become a parent like your whole life is dedicated to this other human being and it's not just about you anymore and because of the situation in which she was born she hasn't had a chance to deal with that trauma she's just had to put it aside okay okay I'm responsible for this kid like I just need to not think about myself but obviously those feelings never go away and then it festers and festers into the creation of the Babadook really it's like a physical manifestation manifestation of everything she's been through yeah um so after this and she's kind of been you know actually like possessed by the babadook um this fucking killed my heart she kills bugsy and i was like oh no see there's normally a rule in films like i feel like it's an unwritten rule but normally it's the person who kills a dog dies so I was actually kind of shocked that Amelia or the Babadook didn't kick the bucket in this film because she killed the dog. This is true. It's so that like I like Amelia so much, and I know it's not her that's doing it. Really, it's the Babadook, but that broke my heart. Um, and then she's attempting to kill Sam. So Sam knocks her out, and he's a smart little kid. He ties her up, like that, especially for a six-year-old. Um. And she awakens, obviously Sam's terrified, um, and he's, she's trying to strangle him. And he, at this point, he's got this kind of calmness about him and he caresses her face and he says, like, you can't get rid of the Babadook. And then she starts like throwing up like this, like almost like black tar that's like the Babadook coming out of her. Um, and an unseen force uh, drags him into Amelia's bedroom, which is Sam. Um, and after Sam saved, Amelia is forced by the Babadook to rewatch a vision of her husband's death. And this is like where we get a little bit of gore. Um, and she confronts the Babadook in the basement and then locks the door. So what do you think of this like whole sequence? I do really like the, you know, it's obviously very like disturbing to watch, but her having to face her trauma and face the death of her husband and like actually seeing it again. Like I thought this, these were like really powerful scenes. I don't know about you. Yeah, like what I love as well about it, it's like throughout the film, like Sam's always like, I'll protect you, mom. Which is another reason I don't understand why people hate this little boy. He's so sweet. Like I understand he has some challenging behaviors that can be difficult to deal with. Like, you know when he's screaming and stuff like it's hard but unfortunately as kids like I don't I don't want kids because I don't want screaming people in my life but that's fine but I'm not gonna like hate a kid for screaming Jesus Christ which I feel like a, he gets a lot of flack for um but he's such a sweet boy and all he wants to do is help his mum so I love that it's like his love for her is the first thing that 
helps her get to the stage where she can try and like get the Babadook out of her and like deal with the Babadook um yeah and I also love as well that the way she kind of has to deal with it too like she's just kind of forced to deal with it because similarly as well I feel like if you go through an episode of having poor mental health like it eventually all comes to like a breaking point where you have to deal with it and then you like start start the healing journey um but like start to heal from it all and I feel like this is what we're seeing with her like it's it's seven years she's been told for the first time that she has to face Sam's birthday as Sam's birthday she can't hide hide it in amongst Ruby's birthday anymore like Sam's gonna have to celebrate his birthday on his own day which just so happens to be Oscar's day of death and he's helping her deal with that and I think that's really like adorable and sweet like throughout the film he tells like his mum that he loves her and he's very affectionate towards her he's actually a really sweet kid um like I just want to give him a bit of a bosey and feel like it's all right. I know. <laughs> I know, he seems like a wee cute. It's a shame. Um, so after this, um, I think it's probably like a week or so later, because up until this point, like um Sam's been off school for two weeks. Um Amelia seems like a completely different person. She's really attentive and caring towards him, you know, encouraging his magic tricks. It's his birthday and it's his first celebration, like where he's got to celebrate it. I forgot as well, we haven't mentioned it, but like they're not child protective services, but there's some like oh yeah, it's like people. someone from the school board or something, because he's not involved in a school anymore. Yeah, they come to visit because they previously came to visit. And one thing that made me absolutely laugh, like piss myself, is because kids have no filter. Like the first time he's just like, oh, I'm a bit tired because mummy gave me drugs. <laughs> like He talks about the trauma of, oh, I didn't celebrate my birthday because my dad died the day I was born. So nonchalantly. <laughs> I feel like as well, anyone I know who's had to who's worked with like autistic kids or like has an autistic child in their family it's just the absolute complete and our lack of filter it's just that's a very like autistic trait as well and so- sometimes it's like it's really funny and sometimes it can be like really embarrassing <laughs> um so they're kind of like yeah okay like um everything seems seems better now um and they're gathering earthworms in a bowl in the garden and Amelia takes it to the basement where the Babadook resides. So we thought the Babadook may have died, but the Babadook is still kicking about. Um, and she places the bowl for him to eat. Um, he tries to attack her, but she actually manages to calm it down. And then she goes back upstairs and celebrates Sam's birthday. That's the end of the film. Now, there's a lot of debate about the ending and like what the ending actually means. And kind of, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on this. The main kind of thing that people say it's like, and I agree with this as well. And we've kind of already alluded to this that like the Babadook is the physical manifestation of their trauma, specifically Amelia's trauma and her depression. And you know, mental health, depression, it never goes away, but she's learning to live with it. So that's kind of her like coming to terms with her trauma and it's still always going to be there, but she's learning how to cope with it and then focus on like being the best 
her that she can be for her and her son you know what I mean what what did you think of this ending did you get that or did you have a, a different thought no I definitely got that as well like I feel like whether it's just like a period of poor mental health or if it's actual mental illness like you kind of have to learn to live with it and deal with it if you neglect it it's gonna get bad again and it's something you constantly have to keep on top of whether it's like through medication or coping strategies or like whatever it is you do for self-care to keep you in a good headspace that it's something you have to do every single day um you can't neglect it you can't ignore it because otherwise it's it's going to become a big scary monster again that's going to make you retreat and angry and irritable and shut yourself away from the world um so I I really love that because I feel like in a lot of media that talks about like going through a period of mental illness it's just like oh and and then they did this and everything was fine and happy and it's that's not how it works like even if you're taking your education out doing all the other stuff you can still have like a really bad time um so it's, it's constant work so I really like how they have the Babadook living in the basement and she's feeding it worms which it seems to like and that's like her looking after the monster in her head yeah exactly I feel like especially right now where you know everyone's mental health has been affected by the pandemic and there's been such a focus not even out with pandemic but especially on social media there's been this like big discussion about love yourself and self-care but it's almost kind of seen as self-care conquers all and it's like yes self-care is important therapy is important medication is important but it doesn't make it ever go away. It's about learning to live with it and actively working on your mental health because it's not a flick, you know, a flick of a switch. Yeah. Or as Cam's like to say, have a hot bath and a cup of tea and you'll be right as rain. No. No, <laughs> definitely not. But yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting how, I don't know, some people are just like, oh just go for a walk and you'll feel better I'm like oh also wasted all that time and years of counseling for nothing thanks I'll just go for a walk to get rid of all this fucking trauma thank you it's like that would have saved me so much time so much money and private therapy all the meds like thank you (laughs) whereas I think just if folk acknowledge like you have an illness or like you're going through a hard time it's it's different rather than just being like oh just do this and you'll feel better it's like you know you're not going to say it's something with diabetes like oh just inject your insulin then you'll feel better like it's oh just do this and you'll feel better like if yeah. you have a heart condition it's like fuck off like it doesn't work like that no it just kind of it's kind of a slap in the face really to anyone that deals with mental health um but on that note, is there anything else you want to talk about, Lindsay, with the Babadook before we get into trivia and box office and all that good stuff? Uh, no, I think that's me. Thank you. Cool. So just a little couple bits of trivia from me. So this film is actually based on another short film that Jennifer Kent did in 2005 called Monster. So she calls it the baby Babadook, basically, <laughs> which is so cute. A baby Babadook could actually be quite cute. Um but when asked about like the inspiration for the Babadook, she said that she has a friend that's a single mother 
and whose son was traumatized by a monster that he saw everywhere in the house so she thought like what if this was actually real um so that's when she made monster in 2005 but it didn't quite put across everything that she wanted and she wanted to talk more about the realities of unprocessed trauma and then adding the supernatural element to it so that's kind of like how the Babadook came about um and also um can have a little look-see oh yeah I really like this I actually I would quite like to get a copy of this myself so um the movie had a kickstarter campaign as well um they raised like 30 grand as part of the budget and most of that went towards the art department which you know the art department is a big part of this film um and as part of it they had a Babadook pop-up book which was 80 dollars there's only 2,000 made but you could actually buy the book I'd love a copy of the book yeah absolutely what an awesome collector's item to have definitely um Babadook is actually an anagram for a bad book I didn't know that that makes sense didn't clock that um and as we've mentioned before the film became a bit of a meme and the Babadook Loki is a queer icon because Netflix accidentally placed it under LGBT LGBT movies a couple years ago (laughs) which is quite funny that's one thing I love about like LGBTQI plus community it's just like the tiniest little thing will just grab on it and be like that's gay <laughs> as a visual escape there's nothing in this film that, like, that makes you think that the Babadook is queer in any which way whatsoever but this Netflix accident and it's like the Babadook is forever gay that's it that's the rules like I don't make them but that's the rules exactly we don't make the rules we're just here <gasps> do you remember as well because I think it came out either like that year or maybe the year after so there was all these memes about Pennywise and the Babadook being like a couple oh, I loved that so much should have been couple goals for last last time we could have done both oh, those yeah. films oh maybe another Never episode thought. yes <laughs> <laughs> um and there is plenty of other trivia but those are just the main ones um, so we'll get into the box office. So this film like had actually like a relatively small budget. It only had two million. So it was only one million above the invitation. And um, it made 10 million in the box office. So I mean, it did pretty well, but like in the grand scheme of things, it's only double figures. I feel like this film's like really underrated. I don't think it was, I mean, I first saw this on Netflix. So I didn't see it when it got released. Again, it was another film I didn't see till it was on Netflix. So I don't know how much, like how well it was received when it was like in the cinema, but it got like, it didn't get that much traction until it went on streaming services. I don't know if like you agree with that. I don't know I feel like it got like a lot of traction at the cinema which is why I'm like really shocked it's got such I mean obviously it's a good return based on the budget but I remember everybody talking about this film like oh the Babadook is the scariest film and you know I really felt like it was like a big thing for a while or maybe it was when it came out in streaming but I just i I feel like it was when it was at the cinema and it was just like everybody go and see this film which is why it was in my head for such a long time to watch it and then I eventually did like a year or so ago um but yeah I was like I was surprised it was so like such a small box office return considering how much chatter there was about it but it's another film I'm very glad that it's on streaming because it's a film I feel like everybody should watch yeah definitely like 
it feels weird calling it underrated because I feel like a lot of people know this film now like yeah because of all the discourse and like people that have a lot of negative thoughts on it I also heard like no when it came out when it went on streaming so many people being like this film is so shit and I was like I'll see it for myself I'll make my own opinion and I loved it Did um, those people also happen to be cisgendered men because I have a theory yes <laughs> that it's men that don't like this film because it's a film about female trauma this is true and they can't relate to it so if they can't relate to it they hate it yeah I never thought about that but yeah <laughs> everybody everybody who's told me this has been a shit film has been a cisgender guy <laughs> yeah theory confirmed um but yeah I feel like because of that box office it is kind of an underrated film I, I would think it'd be a lot more of a financial success than that I mean maybe it has now like since it's been on streaming services but this was the latest figure I could find um but in terms of the box office as well I'm uh, not box office sorry in terms of the ratings it's also kind of similar so IMBD gave this a 6.8 out of 10 um the Rotten Tomatoes critics actually gave it a 98 percent which is wild but then the audience gave it 72 so it's like really varied hmm like I'm quite surprised at that but then at the same time like kind of not because like saying before I watched this film everyone told me it was shit and then like I had a very emotional cathartic experience watching it for the first time so I thought they were speaking a lot of shite to be honest I like I agree with the critics like for once we agree with the critics yeah (laughs) so on that note Lindsay what are you gonna rate the Babadook out of 10? I'm gonna give the Babadook a nine out of ten. Um, I've spoken very highly of this film throughout the time that we've been talking about it, but um, especially for the the theme, like it's a great directorial debut by Jennifer Kent, um, and it's a great film about like like I just said, female trauma. Um, because I don't think this film would have been the same if it was about a a widowed father. It's very much about a widowed mother and the pressures put on women to hold themselves to a particular standard after traumatic events happen. Um, we see throughout the film that Amelia is not really given any allowance to feel her trauma. And um, and then it manifests as the Babadook. Uh, and I think that's just such a fantastic way to talk about mental illness and depression as well. Um, like I kind of said at the start of the film, I felt very seen uh, when I watched this so I think it's a good film that way like if you have someone in your life who has depression and you're just like I really don't understand like watch this and maybe it'll help you understand because I would definitely feel very seen in it yeah um we've got a, a double bill in terms of rankings we've got the same ranking for this as well so I'm also going to give this a nine out of ten um pretty much echoing exactly what you said I feel like anyone that has depression even for me as somebody that has PTSD I felt so seen by this film in terms of trauma and grief as well because I mean grief never goes away and like you know seven years on Amelia's still dealing with the repercussions of what happened I feel like that's very relatable and like as I mentioned before we like this film is so relatable from a female perspective and also in relation to motherhood like I said like I know I'm not a mother but it shows motherhood in a way that's not really been shown before and like 
the grimness of being a parent that it's not all sunshine and roses like I think any parent can agree with that you might have a perfect child but like you know there's still a lot of trauma that comes with that and being a single parent on top of that and just the way that the characters in this are morally gray you know they're not black or white they're not angels and they're not terrible people either um I feel like it's really interesting I feel like this is a film we need not just in horror but just in general when it comes to mental health and being a single parent and being a mother I think feel like it's like a really important film so I'd recommend anyone to watch it so yeah two nine out of tens so on that note that's today's episode the first one of our um women in horror month um next week we are going to be talking about horror movies written by women so I've chosen Revenge Lindsay what have you chosen I've chosen Casper I'm so excited for that (laughs) I know me too I I had a different choice originally but I feel like this choice fits in more with um the month that we're talking about because obviously it's International Women's Month but before womanhood there's girlhood so excited to talk about um a kid's film and Casper and Scream Queen Christina Ricci so yeah and I'm also buzzing to talk about Revenge as well because it's it's such a good it's such a good film and it's such a good um it's such a refreshing take on the subgenre of revenge films as well um you know because it's actually written and directed by a woman for a change yes exactly I think we've started off on a great um, a great start to the month with Karen Kasuma and Jennifer Kent and really excited for the rest of the month we also have some guests coming back that you might have already heard before in the podcast so that's coming up soon um, but Lindsay if people want to catch on the socials where can they find you? I am at hi it's Lindsay underscore on all social media and you can find me on Twitter and Twitch all the socials at lulu underscore pew if you want to find the podcast you can find us at girlfriend pod on twitter and girlfriends underscore podcast on instagram and thank you all stay spooky stay safe and have a great week